I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture with me, Neil Denny. This week, writer and cultural critic John Higgs returns to Little Atoms to talk about his latest book, Watling Street. John Higgs is the author of I Have America Surrounded, The Life of Timothy Leary, The KLF, Chaos, Magic and the Band Who Burned a Million Pounds, Stranger Than We Can Imagine, Making Sense of the 20th Century, which listeners will remember we talked about on a previous Little Atoms, and the novels The Brandy and the Damned and The First Church on the Moon. And his latest book, Watling Street, we're going to be talking about today. John, welcome back to Little Atoms. Hello, Neil. What's the idea behind Watling Street then? How did this one come about? Well, it's a journey uh, across the country. Uh, Watling Street, if you don't know what it is, it's a road that goes from Dover up through London, through the Midlands into North Wales and ultimately onto Anglesey. But it's a road that's always been there. It's like one of the one constants in, you know, British history. I mean, we talk of it as a Roman road. It's far older than that. You know, we don't know how old it is. That's how mm-hmm. old it is. But it's essentially, if you think back to the, um, oh, to after the Ice Age, when the, it was, this was all forests, you know, and you think of the first footprints going through the primordial sort of landscape, probably not even human footprints, you know, probably like little snuffling pig-like creatures, like finding the dry ground, the, you know, the higher paths and things like that, and people coming along following their tracks, and those tracks becoming paths, and those paths becoming roads, and then, you know, the, the Romans straightening them, and, and them becoming royal highways, and then turnpikes, and now that's the A2 and the A5. Mm-hmm. They've always been there, as I say, it's this, this sort of one one sort of constant, and it struck me that there was nothing more neutral than a road, Right. It's, it, it's no politics to a road. It doesn't care who's travelling along it. If you, I thought if you told the story of a road, you get a, a vision of this country that's, you know, very different to the one we're sort of taught at school and hopefully more useful. So that was that was that was the reasoning. And there's a, there's a network is probably overdoing it, but there's a number of these roads, the Foss Way, mm. the Ignealed Way, the Ridgeway. Yeah, but, Why Watling Street in particular? Uh, well, it was the name, to be honest. I just loved the name. I, I, it's not that I went away and researched which was the most interesting, which was the most drenched in you know history and things like that. It might be that the Foss Way is the one. You know, mm-hmm. I, I don't know. There's just something about the name Watling Street. It's got a certain understated British 
sort of magic to it. I mean, the ne- I mean, if you look in stories about Roman Britain, they'll always refer to Watling Street, but the name comes from the Dark Ages. It's much, much later. It came from around the St Albans area. Mm-hmm. But there was just something about it that spread, and it spread as far south as, as Canterbury, as far north as Shrewsbury. It sort of went back in time to the, to the Roman sort of thing. So basically, I'm just taking that name and applying it to the A2 and the A5. There's a certain appeal to the name that I can't quite put my finger on. And you said you chose a road. The idea of basing the book around the road gives it a sort of neutral quality. And Mm. the idea about the book is you're basically travelling up that road and I guess trying to get to the root of Englishness, Britishness, some sort of identity. Yeah, well, I mean, I did this in... 2016. Mm. Most of it was written in 20. You'll remember 2016. It was a bit grim for pretty much everyone. You know, there's just there's, there's this anger everywhere on social media, mm. and you know there was families were split. Uh, young kids were angry about their their grandparents over you know over Brexit and all all this thing. And it was um, there was a sense that our our notion of of geographic identity um, wasn't working. That it cracked. That it would sort of it sort of split and. I think I was very lucky to be writing this book that year because mm-hmm. everywhere I was looking, I wasn't finding stories of, of you know, uh, anger or division. I was finding stories of how we transcend division. Every this It was a theme that sort of kept coming up again and again and again, this sort of... Uh, that we have the ability to transcend division on, the, on this island. And in many ways, divisions are an important sort of part of us. It made me feel much more positive doing this book at that time you know it's not it's definitely it's not a book for people who want to be proud to be british right but it's mm-hmm. it, it it certainly made me delighted to be british that very idea i think you say british and i'm thinking more in terms of english obviously the very idea to me of like an english identity is a bit queasy in the way that yeah i can't really think of anybody else who has that sort of feeling yeah definitely. again certainly like you know thinking of somebody else who might you might think might like americans for instance certainly don't have anywhere near the the trouble with their own identity that i think a lot of english people do yeah definitely i mean for me i mean i'm I was born in Rugby. I was born on Watling Street or very close to Watling Street. But I, I was raised in North Wales. Mm-hmm. So I, I sort of come from this borderland. Uh, so you're sort of betwixt and between. And, and when you're from uh, uh, the borders, the notion that they're a real thing that exists just seems ludicrous mm-hmm. to you, right? Yeah. The, the notion that, you know, at some point, you know, Welshness stops and Englishness starts. It's just ridiculous. There's Everywhere is this sort of shifting sort of patchwork sort of... Uh, obviously, the coast is a good boundary. Rivers can be a good boundary. There are natural sort of boundaries, but sort of on land, there is something kind of ridiculous about borders, you know. The, and if your if your sense of identity is based on which side of the field you started on, right, you've missed the point of pride. You know? mm-hmm. Pride is a very important uh, attribute for us. We need we need pride, but pride has to come from our actions from our relationships it has to come from what we've done it's not if you're just saying i'm proud because these other people who lived years ago did great things and therefore i'm proud of that you've completely missed the point of pride <laughs> but welsh people are proud of being welsh and rightly so frankly yeah. you know there's not that same thing with the irish scottish and the welsh all have an identity yeah there's something about first of all englishness that's that just seems weird and creepy, but also about the identity of Britishness, because that's a thing that's just, like, forced upon those other nations. It's a thing that's cobbled together through political allegiances and things, and it's not it's not a real thing you can grab hold of. Yeah, I mean, basically, we're all kin on a rock, you know. We're all... It's this damp, wet island in the, in the North Atlantic. 
we all live on here and we have to sort of get by as best we can. And I think the, the important thing about this sense of you know, national geographic identity is that it's always a work in progress, right? There was never like a time at a certain point in history, say whatever mm. year you think, where uh, we had it right, you know, where the, the nature of who we were was decided yeah. uh, and it became a fixed thing and that every generation that sort of uh, comes after that has to live in like, you know, a, a Heritage Park version of how it used to be. That's not, it's not the case. It's a thing that we're constantly working on and uh, evolving and changing and making it suit us at this particular point in history. And, and if it doesn't, right, if your sense of national identity is something that's... Um, problematic or, or, or damaging to you in, in some way you just haven't done the work you need to sort of go back you need to go back and look at the history and mm-hmm. the people before you and, and things like that because uh, it's, re- it's it's really it's not so much about there's so much history in this this country right? the soil is so rich and so fertile that our identity is really uh, an editing job you know mm. it's what we choose to focus on you can focus on other things you can focus on other versions and that's I think this is what I was trying to do in this book was just to look again and find a sense of, of, of Britishness that I thought was positive and, and that sort of sustains me and things because we you know we are from a place I mean I, I noticed this when I did my last book Strength to Imagine it was great because I got to go abroad quite a bit I went to Canada I went to, to Spain for the, the various things and you know international publishers treat you like royalty it's fantastic I've never had anything like it but they'd be like oh can I get you a drink and, and I'd go uh, oh lovely can I have a cup of tea and they just sort of laugh right because the notion of me asking for a cup of tea was so stereotypically British mm-hmm. in their eyes that it was funny and part of me wants to go but no no tea is the best drink right it's you know really it's, it's rationally the best drink but I know deep down that these things that I think are uh, important parts of my identity, the, the the music I like, the comedy I like, the, the drinks I like, mm-hmm. you know, I haven't rationally sort of chosen them. You know, there's there's a, a large part of my identity. It's almost like a sort of an add-on, a sort of a bionic arm or something that, that comes from the place uh, that you, you've grown up with. And, and tea, of course, is a classic example of something that's like you can't think too deeply about it because you tie yourself up in all sorts of ethical knots. <laughs> <if you're actually laughs> and it's, it was bizarre. Where was I? Was in, I was in Greece um, on a holiday uh, a few weeks ago and all the tea was marked as like English tea or, mm. or, or London tea or, or something like that. And you just think, that's very odd for a, you know, a, a drink from India as it was in the tea I, w- I was having. But it's become so much part of our identity i think uh tea is a good thing to include in our identity you know i'm all for it i'm you know the more tea the better that's not not something i'd overlook and and choose something more i'm alex cox and this is little atoms a radio show about ideas and culture thinking about the idea that of of identity as as not necessarily this idea of sort of shared you know characteristics or values or something but as a shared cultural heritage and history mm. you talk about this concept the new sphere mm. um tell us about the new sphere what do you mean by that yeah or the newospheres i think new-o-sphere. it's new sphere would be more fun but i think it's new sphere um i talked about a similar uh, concept in a, in a previous book i think it's a book about the klf mm-hmm. uh, and i used the phrase idea space for this which comes from from alan moore and, and steve moore yeah but i i I, I chose the word newosphere for this book, partly because Alan Moore is in the book. Yeah. <laughs> and, it would and, be, Steve Moore. And, and Steve Moore. And Steve Moore, of course he is, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> because 
this, it's more grounded in place. The thinking was that um, there were sort of concentric sort of spheres. At the base of it would be the geosphere. This is the the, the world of uh, physical mineral and rock and stuff. So we've got the geosphere. And ri- arising out of the geosphere comes the biosphere, which is the which is living living matter. And living matter, the, the biosphere... It evolves and changes quicker than the geosphere, but it is very much based in the geosphere. But then you can go further up, which is what uh, de Chardin did, which is uh, out of the biosphere arises the neosphere, which is the, the, the world of uh, ideas, basically. It's of laws and languages and culture and songs and, and histories and stories and things like Anything immaterial, mm-hmm. that's the neosphere. And, and the reason I loved it, it was, it was so clearly linked to the geosphere. You know, in 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 the terminology, uh, and any any um, journey, and this is the thing I sort of learned from reading Ian Sinclair, I suppose. And any any journey is not just through the physical streets; it's through the immaterial version of them mm-hmm. as well. You're as much affected by the the histories and the associations and, and the stories uh, as you are about the real thing. I was just you know I've just walked up uh, to the studio from St Pancras uh, station we're in, we're in London it's just a bit up York way and I used to know this area very very well and it's utterly different now it's entirely entirely it's safe for a start <laughs> it never used to be safe it's full, it's full of like prosperous happy people sort of walking around it was a real wasteland when I sort of knew this and I couldn't walk up to your studio without all the former associations and things applying to it and uh, and and things like that. So a journey, you know, a journey across Britain, as I as I do here, is is as much a, a journey through the the, the Albion neosphere as as it is the the A two the, the mundanity of the A two and the A five. Well, well, um, let's take the journey up Watling Street then, checking out the uh, the British neosphere as we go along, and and actually the book starts. Roughly halfway along, shall we say, in Milton the, Keynes. The introduction is in Milton Keynes. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. No, Milton Keynes is great. It's well, it's a, such a perfect example of what I was, you know, hoping to achieve with the book is that when we think of Milton Keynes, uh, most people, people who don't live in Milton Keynes, that is, uh, have quite a negative association of it as this sort of sort of concrete, um, bland corporate mm-hmm. world of roundabouts and, and, and cars and uh, uh, and things like that. And people who live in Milton Keynes love it, right, as far as I can tell. it's uh, People there are really sort of happy, but um, it's this 1960s new town. It's the biggest of them, you know, it was, it was a quarter of a million people it was, it was built to house in the 1960s designed in the 1960s and that was the you know the white heat of technology the space race was on and it was, it was a, this was the future hence it's this it's done on this very sort of rational american style grid system with roads running vertically starting with the letter v and roads running horizontally starting with the letter h it's rational and it's logical and yet it's been dumped on you know britain where things like rational planning and things just don't really work it's very very odd and you look at milton keynes and it never well a lot of people don't realise that it was designed as a pagan sun temple. Right? <laughs> it's the last thing people notice about it. But that's exactly what it was. It was the 1960s. The um, the, the chief architect was a guy called Derek Walker. He was very much into Pink Floyd. Um, his obituary, and I think it was The Guardian, quotes him as saying of those times that they were very kinky. Right? And... I don't know how many obituaries you've read of chief architects, but it's, it's a phrase you don't get very often, you know. Um, uh, and they were they were very. There was a book by Jean Michel 
uh, a view over Atlantis, which was a real counterculture sort of uh, classic at, at the time uh, about, you know, ancient Albion and Silbury and, uh, you know, our ancient past. Mm-hmm. And they were reading this and um, the notion that, well, maybe this new town that we're building, maybe we could align it to the rising sun on this midsummer solstice so that it emerges at the end of this middle road, which we'll call Midsummer Road, uh, and sends light all the way down to the, the railway station at the other end, which is all glass and mirrored and sort of lights up the connection to the rest of the world. So that the town works exactly like Stonehenge, right? Struck them as a very good idea. So there they were, fifty years ago, out in the mud in the fields with ropes and 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 uh, wooden sticks, paving out this central road, Midsummer Boulevard, waiting for the the sunrise on the shortest day. Uh, and the sun rose up, and they were able to plot it all out. And then they based the rest of the grid system around it. So the whole city is based around this this alignment uh, on on the longest day. And the reason they could do that was because most cities on a grid system run north, south, east, west. Mm-hmm. But it was one road that was already there, which is Watling Street. Of course it was already there. It's always been there, right? But it, it was at an angle. So they had to sort of canter uh, or shift the, the whole grid system to fit in with Watling Street, which allowed them, coincidentally, allowed them to align the whole thing up, you know, with, with the rising sun on, on the midsummer solstice. So the, I talk only about those, you know, those, those Neolithic feet padding through the forests, you know, making these tracks. Those were still affecting the creation of a, you know, a quarter of a million houses in, in, in the 20th century. Uh, the, the past and the present are, are not as separate as we often like to think, you know. to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to John Higgs and we're talking about his latest book, Watling Street. And John, we're going to properly start at the beginning of the road now and head down to Dover. Mm -hmm. um, A place that has a... Certainly it's cliffs, if not the town itself, which is perhaps not quite so um, fondly thought of. Has a a very firm place in uh, in this, you know, idea of our own identity, doesn't it? Yeah, it's it's almost overwhelming, really. It's very hard to uh, stand on those cliffs and not. Um, I mean, they are beautiful. It is it is a beautiful, you know, part of the country, but you're not really looking at that. You're sort of you're hearing Vera Lynn. You're you're uh, thinking of the Spitfires going over. You know, the the Armada, the Spanish Armada would have passed in front. You know, I talk in the book about this. There was a Doctor Who filmed down in the castle there. The James Bond was based uh, uh, or was written just further along the coast. Shakespeare wrote about those cliffs. Winston Churchill was on those cliffs. It's just, it's almost too much. Mm-hmm. You know, we've got so many uh, deeply patriotic associations with those cliffs. It's, it's, it's almost overwhelming. You know, it's almost a bit too, too much to deal with. Yeah. Uh, and you know, I start I start the the book going down into them, deep down into the uh, uh, the World War Two uh, tunnel system. And um, all through the book, there are characters that historical figures and mythical or fictional characters, mm. a number of which will um, will touch on. 
and there becomes a as you talk about in the book you know history the mists of time have like clouded some of these people so the idea of whether or not these people really existed or you know the ones that perhaps are fictional are the people that we know more about than the actual real people and, mm. and the first one of these people that i want to talk about is um Vortigern, yeah, who's a, yeah. a fifth-century British king. Yes. So tell us something about who he was. Well, he was real, as generally accepted that he did exist. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, if you read most of the stories about him, you might think otherwise, because they're full of wizards, they're full of dragons, they're, uh, they're great. It's basically Game of Thrones. If Game of Thrones was a documentary, it would be about Vortigern. Uh, he's probably best known for uh, inviting the, uh, the first of the Anglo-Saxons over, uh, as as mercenaries to to I think was it the, the Scottish were invading or there was, there was some invasion on it at the time so he 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 got a bunch of guys over from Denmark they sorted it out he said have the Isle of Thanet as a thank you and they went wow it's nice here isn't it let's tell our mates and and uh, and the whole of the Anglo-Saxon sort of invasion began because of that so that was almost his um, that sort of runs through the rest of his life story that was his that was his great failing that he's desperately trying to sort of uh, make amends of um, but I, I, I talk with him in Kent but I also mm-hmm. pick him up when I'm in Snowdonia yeah. and the story in Snowdonia is, is, is wonderful he'd, um, at this point he'd, he'd built a, a tower, he wanted to build a tower on Dimus Emrys which is in the, the foothills of Snowdonia and every night the workers would uh, well, the workers would come back in the morning and find that the tower had collapsed every, every night and they couldn't work out why this was happening uh, so they thought well we'll get a druid we'll ask a druid and the druid goes, uh, oh, yeah, you need, I know what you need. You need to get a fatherless boy, right? Get a fatherless boy, sacrifice the fatherless boy, put the blood in the foundations, it will be fine. And, and uh, Vortigern goes, okay, well, uh, we'll best find a fatherless boy then. And as luck would have it, along comes a fatherless boy, uh, who turned out to be Merlin, right? Merlin is the sort of, um, it's a set category of, of historical and mythical figures uh, who are fatherless. And mm-hmm. it's like, it's, it's everyone from like Hercules, Jesus, uh, Darth Vader, Merlin. It's a, it's a certain category. He, he was one of these. And Merlin goes, oh, no, it's that's just... Robert, he didn't want to be sacrificed for this tower, you see. Fair he, goes, he goes, that's totally wrong what they're telling you. Uh, I know I'm just a kid, but listen, drill down into the top of the hill, you'll find a lake, right? You get luck in the lake, you'll find two vases. Right? Open up the vases. Those are the reasons why uh, your tower uh, will not stand. And they go, okay, so they do this. They find the lake, they find the vase, they open up, and these two dragons come come roaring out and, and flying through the air. And, they're, and there's a red dragon and a white dragon. They're fighting and they're clawing at each other. Uh, and dragons in those days weren't the sort of butt of the joke as they sort of become. After St. George, mm-hmm. a, a dragon is there for a rich guy to kill to be, to look impressive. It's like a full guy for like some rich rich lord. At that point, dragons are much more seen in the way they're still seen in the East. They're sort of these really elemental, awesome... I mean, they're the spirits of the people, essentially. It's the, the dragon is the spirit of the people, so the notion that a rich guy stabs it and looks good is, you know, very, very dodgy. Very pro-dragon, you understand. And so the, there's the red dragon is the spirit of the, the Britonic people, the British people, and the white uh, dragon is the Anglo-Saxons, uh, who Vortigo and invited because they mm-hmm. were still fighting. That's why his tower wouldn't stand. And I got very sort of fascinated with this, this image of this red and this white dragon tumbling around each other, uh, and it started to remind me of the Tudor Rose, mm-hmm. which becomes a very important uh, a symbol in this book because it's, as I was saying earlier, it's it's a symbol about transcending division. It's after the Wars of the Roses, they'd gone, gone for decades, you know, so much bloodshed had been spilt on both sides that it 
didn't look like there was ever any hope of any sort of reconciliation, you know. But after after Henry Tudor defeated Richard III at the Battle of Bosworth, further down Watling Street, they came up with this wonderful... It was just a symbol, the symbol of the Tudor rose. It had the, the white rose of, of York uh, in the centre, surrounded by the red rose, which, which represents the, the Lancastrians. A uh, little ahistorically, but it was, it was good enough for Shakespeare, so it's okay for me. And what this symbol was, it wasn't favouring one side over the other. It wasn't denying either side. It wasn't raising one above the other. It, was just, it just found a perspective that included both sides and showed them to be part of something larger mm. and more important. Right? And that's always how we transcend division. It's basically, it was, it was a Tudor Good Friday Agreement. It's exactly like the Good Friday Agreement. It didn't you know, marginalise one side, mm. it didn't raise one above the other. It's the way it always is. It's the way it always goes. So, yeah, I've gone slightly off the point about Vortigern, but the... the... Well, we'll come back to Vortigern, because I was just going to say, we envisioned that we would start in Dover and sort of gradually work our way up towards Snowdonia, but actually I think we're going to clock up more miles and we'll go backwards and forwards, up and down the road. And I, I grew yeah. up in Leicestershire, so right. I spent a lot of my childhood romping around Naseby and the Battle yeah. of, and the Bosworth Battlefield. And, and in fact, you talk about another battle that happened somewhere at Watling Street, literally the Battle of Watling Street. Oh, yes, yeah, Boudicca, yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. Um, we don't know, don't quite know where the Battle of, of, of Watling Street is. So we presume it was somewhere nearby. Well, it's... Uh, somewhere up the length. It's quite frustrating because... the. There was an argument that it was it was back pretty much here where we are now, just by St Pancras Station, as, as uh, you said. Um, there's Battlebridge moorings mm-hmm. uh, on the on the canal, and it's uh, it's it's now generally accepted it was much further north. Uh, but it's a shame because the Boudicca could have you know met her end at uh, platform thirteen and three quarters, and combining the Harry Potter and the whole sort of, that would have been a lovely, lovely sort of a bit of Britishness. But no, it was probably further up. I suspect probably around Watford Gap or or, or somewhere like that. But that that was a real um, changing point in in history. It's, it seems that been more people killed on that day than at any point up until about the First World War. It was a real violent, 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 bloody. Um, massacre, and it was a surprise on many levels that um, the Romans won mm-hmm. because the the the, you know, the 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 British uh, Boudicca's British forces had been defeating Roman legions and, and things like that. It was a real sort of turning point, and I, I strongly suspect that it's a lot to do with the fact that they'd wiped out the Druid heartland. Uh, on Anglesey. Yeah, all the way back up the road. All, all the way, way yeah, to Anglesey. Which, which is where they'd come. And it, <clears> so going back and forth. The, the, the amount of battles on Watling Street is because if you want to have a battle, you need to get your armies together. Mm-hmm. You know, so you talked about Naseby, you talked about Bosworthfield, you know, they, they're all on these, on these blood-soaked sort of roads. Yeah. So all the way back up to, to Snowdonia again, where we left Vortigern, and as you said, Merlin... And of course, Merlin, then you know King Arthur. There's a yeah. you know another one of these figures, although not necessarily associated with Watling Street. But we'll just take a sort of side step to say here's a classic example of one of these was he mythical, was he not figures that's mm. like firmly embedded in in the British newsphere. Yeah, and Watling Street can work as a dividing line across the country. You know, a road connects us, but also divides <clears> at the same time. Uh, almost literally in the Watling Street case, all the rivers sort of the north flow into um, you know the North Sea and things like that, and, and all the rivers to the south and the west flow out separately. It's 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 the sort of the, the river basin, and and to the north and east of Watling Street is very much the territory of uh, Robin Hood, whereas to the south and the west is much more uh, King Arthur's 
sort of territory. And they're both, they're sort of opposites, really. They're both folk heroes. Uh, but Robin Hood was the man of the people. He was the people. That was the whole point of him. He was the man of the people. It was changed. It was changed to make him an earl or mm. l- l- Lord Loxby or, or something like that because if someone was doing great things that they had to be, you know, a, they couldn't have been a commoner. Oh, no, no, no. Sorry. And the whole point of him was he's a commoner. You know, he's a, well, a yeoman anyway. He was, you know, he was, he was a man of the people. Uh, whereas the, the folk here on the other side of Walking Street uh, is in which King Arthur, which is much more about duty uh, and about honour and about chivalry and, and things like that. So they're, they're very much opposite and I think they balance each other quite well, Robin Hood and, and King Arthur. And I mean, the same thing happens with Shakespeare. You know, there's all of this nonsense about mm. Shakespeare, you know, not being the, the person that wrote his plays. Mm-hmm. Is this idea that, you know, somebody who was a commoner from the Midlands couldn't mm. necessarily have... I've done that. And yeah, it, did... had, it had to be a lord. It's yeah. like, it's, or, or possibly six lords. You know, that's whatever the theory is. You know, I mean, obviously somebody wrote those plays, right? So it's conceivable that there was someone of that genius, uh, and it's very noticeable that the argument, yes, but they can't just have been a merchant's son. You know, they they had to be. You know, they had to be uh, aristocrat. Is it runs deep in this country? And you talk about the way that the the Robin Hood story has been sort of like sanitized sort of neutered makes mm. him into a you know he was probably some lord that had been dispossessed by king john because you know he was not a revolutionary but he was somebody who was for the good king who yeah. was richard who was obviously you know i'm sure no more of a good king than, than john was yeah the, the, the idea that john was terrible and, and uh richard lanhart was wonderful is, is not one that many medieval scholars would sort of have a lot of time for but it was it was sort of retrofitting robin who was this you know this this spirit of the woods this this um the spirit of the common man because the first people to write down these stories, you know, uh, were um, probably to do with the church or, or or some wealthy institution that were the few people who could sort of write. So the stories, as soon as the ballads got sort of written down, they became suitable for the people who were writing them down. So you can really sort of see that shift. But no, the whole point of Robin Hood was he was just this, this bloke from this country mucking around in the woods with his mates having a great time. That's, that's, that's the heart of it. The story where, you know, he meets a guy go across a river on a... On a on a, on a fallen tree so they have a fight and he loses and he thinks it's brilliant so they become firm friends that's very much Robin Hood you know that's 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 very much the story the, the notion that he's a noble lord is really not not part of it I'm Hannah Fry you're listening to Resonance FM and this is Little Atoms a radio show about ideas and culture well staying with Robin Hood for a minute I mean one of the another one of these characters that's Again, a real character this time that seems to have disappeared into the mist of time and, and has become mythical. And it's possibly one of the the models for Robin Hood is Harold the Wake. Yeah, Who was yeah. he? Well, Harold was one of the... He was um, after the Norman invasion, after William the... William the Bastard, as was, becomes William the Conqueror. Uh, he was one of the major leaders of the ongoing British rebellion. He would... Uh, they were supposed to like basically guerrilla forces fighting the Normans. Mm-hmm. Um, he would he would uh, often disappear into the marshes around East Anglia or, or to, to the east of the country, uh, which is very difficult for the, the, uh, the Normans to sort of follow him and find him in that sort of territory. There's the brilliant story of how the... Uh, the, the Normans couldn't find him, so they put up some witch towers, which is like a tower, right, with a witch on the top. And the witch shouts out curses, right? And 
you just think, wow, how how different warfare would have been if witch towers had caught on. <laughs> uh, but they didn't catch on because it turns out they're very easy to burn down. You know, one flame and arrow and your witch tower's sort of gone. So that was that was a bit of a bl- uh, uh, blind alley in, in military uh, evolution. But yeah, I what mean... What happens to Vortigern? Yes, his tower burns down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. At the end of his life, at the very end of his life, which I think was when he was being pursued by um, Uther Pendragon, if my memory's if my memory's right. Yeah, yeah. But uh, there's no witch on the top of that one, which is which is the, the detail I particularly like. Uh, yeah, Herod the Wake, last of the English, is uh, as, as as he was named in a novel. He's, he's a very very interesting figure, uh, but we're usually quite good at glamorising. These sort of, I don't know, freedom fighters or whatever you wish to call them. Boudicca, absolutely no problem. When the Romans invaded, she attacked the Romans. She failed, but she's still a hero. King Arthur, when the Anglo-Saxons came in, you know, he failed, Mm -hmm. but he's still a hero. Something about Harrowood we ignore because it was after the Normans invaded and they're still pretty much in power, you know. Uh, so So we have to sort of avoid him slightly. Um, but in, in it, he should be remembered in exactly the same way as as, as Boudicca and, and King Arthur. See, I think what's really interesting about these particular characters being the ones we talk about is, you know, as we all know, Britain is this country of repeated waves of invasion and immigration Absolutely. over the years. Absolutely. And so realistically, I have no idea of mm. who I'm... Descended from. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So and why? It, and if you were to get a DNA test, you'd probably you'd probably be very. So everyone's just shocked. It's yeah. like, how how am I from, from Greenland? <laughs> it's a, it's I a... have actually. I, I've I've had one of those DNA tests mm. related to related to the radio show because we we advertise oh, yes. one of those companies on it, and so I got one of those free DNA tests. I was um, unsurprisingly, you know, ridiculously high percentage of. Northern European, yeah. But more interestingly, was in the um, in the top one percent of people for having a high percentage of Neanderthal, which I found. Oh, very excellent! Yeah, yeah. You're proud of your Neanderthal. Yeah, heritage. I'm very much so. That, that made me really pleased. That was the best thing. <laughs> thing. That's the one thing I can really remember. Yeah, you know, it tells you whether you've got I don't know sticky or dry earwax or whatever. Yeah. But you know what I mean. The thing that I cared about most was the uh, high percentage of. Of Neanderthal, that made me really like, you know. So I care about Neanderthal rights and everything now. Oh, excellent, excellent. And I want to big up my, my Neanderthal. Yeah, yeah. I mean, heritage. we are an absolute mongrel people to the extent that the the Aboriginal British, right, the first people sort of on this island, mm-hmm. we just don't talk about them. No, you know, well, we, we have talk, no idea who we, they are. We, right? we talk about the Celts, right? But they were invaders. You know, the the the, the Celtic invaders came and sort of pushed away the the original sort of British people who have left, you know, wonderful markers across this this island, stones and interesting sort of sort of things. There, there is evidence of them. But because they weren't, you know, a strange mishmash of immigration and things like that, weirdly, there's something un-British about them. You know, they, they were just too British to be... They were pure British, so therefore then there's nothing British about them. It's very, it's very weird, the way we ignore them. And I was going to say, because I don't know, because I have no idea where I'm descended from in that respect. I don't really get why, you know, I'm supposed to favour Harold and not William, for instance. You know what I mean? Mm, I, don't, like, mm. I don't understand why one's... Obviously, he's the loser, but, you know, why is one the hero and one not? And the story that made me think of that most of all in this book was the story of... Um, I was going to say Hagrid. No, it's obviously not Hagrid. Hengis. Hengis. Who's... Um, 
there's this meeting, the sort of like proto night oh, of the long knives. Yeah, thing. yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, it's... and he's the bad guy because he's yeah. the trickster. Whereas you know, there's loads of other cultures around the world that like revere Norse cultures and you know Indo-American cultures have these sort of like trickster gods and trickster sort of deities and yeah, things. And, yeah. and here's this guy who basically wins because of cunning, not because of like. Yeah, I think well, the, he seemed to me the hero. The, the story, the story you're referring to was there was a, a giant tent, I think, on on the it was on the Marlborough Downs, Salisbury Plain, Salisbury Plain somewhere around somewhere around there. Uh, as a peace treaty between uh, the, the the British people or the Celtic people or whatever you'd call them, uh, and and the the Anglo-Saxons coming in, and this was Vortigern again, you know, uh, and the idea was they all went and sit in a circle, all these various chieftains, and they they sort of sat uh, alternate, so there'd be a you know an Anglo-Saxon next to a, a Brit, next to an Anglo-Saxon next to a Brit. Because it was a peace talk, it was a peace talk, and all the weapons had been left outside. But uh, as it turned out, that the Anglo Saxons uh, had knives, really long knives, hidden in their boots. Uh, in fact, the name Saxon comes from these long knives. And at a certain point, uh, Hengist calls out for all the Saxons to sort of pull out their knives and stab. Uh, the British, but it's this great betrayal, and we we see we see it uh, even in in Game of Thrones, the the <laughs> the, the Red Wedding. It's yeah. sort of a, it's sort of a, uh, an updating of, of of that original idea, and I think Vortigern was was kidnapped and was continued. He, he had quite a life, did Vortigern? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know, just to sort of favour one side over the other just does become quite ludicrous. You know, after after a while, to say to say one side is is better or, or right or something like that it totally falls apart you know when you when you look again at your history you can be brought up to be told that you know oh you know the normans are the the civilizing sort of force and things like that but if you look at the history it's it's yeah, yeah, yeah. although the harrowing of the north and everything oh, the hang- yeah, exactly, they, were yeah. not, they were not nice people but they, they were not nobody nice was people. <laughs> Nobody was. This is true, but they were particularly not. No, yeah, the Herring the North was. It was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. 
like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Little Atoms. I'm Neo Denny. Today I'm talking to John Higgs. We're talking about Watling Street, his latest book. And John, we're going to fly right back down towards the beginning of the road again now to Canterbury. Mm. Canterbury, which appears in this book in, in numerous guises, the approach to Canterbury, Chaucer and the Canterbury Tales, the uh, Powell and Pressburger movie, mm-hmm. uh, A Canterbury Tale, and the murder of Thomas Beckett as well. Yeah, Thomas Beckett, why is he not called Thomas A. Beckett anymore? It's a shame, isn't it? I, I quite like Thomas A. Beckett, but, uh, you know... That's what I grew up with. Yeah, you, people, you know, preferred uh, Bodicea to Boudicca. Yeah. But then we go, oh, that's not, that's not their name. It's <laughs> just got that, that sort of wrong. Where did that come from? Well, the great, the great thing about history was, you know, certainly spelling a name wasn't a set sort of way. And sort of saying a name was, the further you go back, was much more varied and, and, and things like that. So you... So how she- William Shakespeare would have you know spelt his name? No one mm-hmm. knows. It was just a, it changed all the time, and, and these names can shift shift about quite a bit. Yeah. But Canterbury. Let's talk about Canterbury itself, the cathedral, its city, and again its place in our sort of long and illustrious history. Mm. Yeah, um, uh, and you know Thomas Thomas Beckett is. Uh, it's interesting that he's so important to us. We all know the story of Thomas and, and Henry, and uh, and how King Henry had to humiliate himself, you know, and on in front of the tomb of of Thomas Beckett after after he'd been killed. Not so much on his orders, but after he exclaimed something about a troublesome priest, and uh, and and he was killed, and then it was generally perceived that the sin was on him. It's an interesting story that there have been archbishops uh, killed uh, other than Thomas. So it's not the fact that it was necessarily just that he was an archbishop that had been killed that makes him so important. I think it's because he was... Um, I mean, it's not fair to say he was a commoner. He was uh, he was from Norman descent, so he'd been in the upper classes. But he was basically from the streets of London. You know, he was he was very low down uh, compared to the king, you know. And so to become the friend of the king and be raised by the king and treated as an equal, uh, and then to decide, after he becomes um, Archbishop of Canterbury, that he's not equal to the king. He's got a higher calling. You know, he, he has this... Uh, uh, he will not do what the king says, even though it means his own death. Uh, and to, turns him into a saint, which is, raises him higher than a king. I think there's, there's a lot of interesting things in the story of, 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 of Thomas about power and about uh, the relationship between the spiritual and the political, mm-hmm. which is what I talk about a lot in, in, in that chapter. There are two things usually don't go together, right? You find people who are very political and people who are very spiritual. And there's a sense that the, you know, the, the, the political is, is, you know, too um, practical and hard-nosed and, and nasty, whereas the spiritual is all too fluffy and meaningless and, and sort of uh, disappears. So when they come together, it's very, very interesting. The, the, the people who are active politically because of a, a sense of spirituality, people like uh, Martin Luther King, mm-hmm. people like Gandhi, there's a real power to them. There's a real shift. I, I compare the story of Thomas uh, and Henry 
to the story of Tony Blair and Brian Hall. Yeah. Now you might remember Brian Hall. He was the guy. Uh, he was an evangelical Christian. He's, he's got links to Whitstable. He's, he's actually from the Midlands, but he's got links to Whitstable. And when the the sanctions first kicked in, this is before the the Iraq War. There was a, and all all the stories about the children in Iraq being killed because of these sanctions. He just couldn't live with it. He just couldn't live with these these Iraqi children dying from a sense of of his Christianity. He just so he, he sort of left home, he left his family and he moved to Westminster Square and set up a tent and just stayed there. Mm. And, and obviously once the, the war in Iraq kicked off he was against that as well, you know. But it was just this real sort of spiritual um need the spiritual necessity that that you don't get from normal political activists and it's interesting to see this recur again and again and again the story you know that you go uh, to canterbury on a pilgrimage to the shrine of thomas but you can just go a bit further up to whitstable and there's a there's a peace bench a brown hall peace bench on the seafront you can, that that becomes the sort of modern day place that you'll go to and i i the notion that one day tony blair might humble himself in front of the grave of Brian Hall, in the way that King Henry humbled himself in front of the the, the grave of Thomas Becket, is it's a tantalising one. I think that's it's. Uh, we will see. We'll see what happens. <laughs> Let's head back up the the road a bit in the direction of London, and I'd like if you were to tell us what connection there is between Charles Dickens and an emu. Yes, we're talking about Great Expectations, uh, and you'll remember Great Expectations of of Miss Havisham. In, in her in her faded gown and knocking around this this decaying old gothic house, and it was quite a surprise for me to realise that, that that's a real house. It's it's in my imagination. It's 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 too unreal to be a real place. And when you find yourself standing right in front of it, uh, it's it's kind of odd. It's it's like fiction and reality sort of merging. And it is in Rochester, and it's just about fifty yards from from Watling Street, and it only exists, only stands there now because of Rod Hull. And emu, mainly Rod Hull. Yeah, I mean emu uh, didn't really have that much involvement. Yeah, it was it was going to be knocked down to be a car park, and a local boy Rod Hull, big fan of Dickens, was in a position to go. No, I'll buy it and I'll, I'll restore it. And um, he he did that. And he moved him and his wife moved in, and he started to pour all his money into restoring this house because he loved Dickens. And uh, uh, and and then his series was cancelled, and there was a the late eighties property crash. Uh, and the house was taken off him by the, the tax people, and he was made bankrupt. And he he, he was this. He ended his days in uh, paying twenty five quid rent in this wee cottage down in. And his uh, wife Minnesota. left him. His wife left him. She took the kids. Ironically, Dickensian story. Yeah, it, it was really really good. Um, so we have him to thank, but it's odd knowing that story because it's, mm. now it's hard for me to imagine. Mish Havisham in a house without Rod Hull and Emu there as well. You know, the, the Emu pecking at that wedding cake decaying or pecking at her, her veils. They've sort of merged in my head. It's it's, it's not true that he um, it was that was the house he he died falling off the roof fixing the aerial from. Mm-hmm. Which sometimes people get mm-hmm. a bit confused. That would have been really bizarre if, if Rod Hull had been killed falling off the roof of Miss Havisham's house from Great Expectations. That would be very very strange. Um, yeah, 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 but th- that's the sort of that's the sort of detail you you, you find if you if you look uh, in in this country. There's so much um, unexpected. Uh, there's so much history, and, and there's so so many things have happened that you're going to get these sort of really sort of ludicrous juxtapositions of you know Rod Hull and, and Miss Havisham. Mm-hmm. Sort of uh, again, yeah, I love it. Moving a little bit further up the uh, 
further up Watley Street towards London, and we approach London via Shooter's Hill. Mm. Um, it's the first time we hear him mentioning this book of Dick Turpin, mm. you know, the famous highwayman of has become highwayman of myth and legend now. Even though, of course, it turns out that he was like a you know not a particularly nice chap. No, he wasn't. This is very true. And um, highwaymen feature highwaymen and highway women feature further up the road yeah. as well. You talk about the uh, the highwayman's pensions, the dandy highwayman's pensions for uh, for cross dressing. Yes, um, people like Mole Cutpurse and um, and Tom Rowland both are cross dressing in either direction as a uh, as highway people. And there's also mention of um, Catherine Farrow, Lady Catherine Farrow, the wicked mm-hmm. lady, as she is. Um, high women, they, they they do again play a sort of a romantic role in our sort of like idea of Britishness. Even though these people were like, you know, yeah. they, these people weren't Robin Hood by any means. No, no, not at all. I mean, Watley Street riddled with high women, you know, it, all up and down. It was mainly Lady uh, Catherine Ferris that I choose to, to write about because she lived mm-hmm. right on Watling Street. Um, but she was she was a good ex- well, actually, yeah, she's not not a typical example because. She she would go. She was a society lady. She was rich. She was wealthy. Her house looks amazing if you go past it. Um, but she would. The story was she would. She had this secret door in her, in her boudoir uh, that led to a secret room where she put on men's clothing, men's highwayman clothes. It had a staircase so she could sneak out the, the house unobserved. And she'd just ride out across England doing whatever she liked. You know, robbing it's like the bat cave. Yeah, like like a bat cave for bad. You know, yeah. and uh, and it wasn't because she needed uh, money or anything like that. She just did it for the thrill of it. You know, the real sort of buzz of it, and um, uh, and she was shot quite young, about age twenty six. Most most uh, men and women of the of the road, you know, had very short short careers. Um, and the, when you look at the reality of it and compare it to the the myth, there's a, such a a, a a gulf. Dick Turpin, as, as you say, was a really sort of horrible, horrible, vicious rapist. Murderer. Well, I'm not sure about murderer. Ter- terrible. Nothing good you could say say about him. But we just romanticise him, you know, uh, quite so much. And this, there's this sort of sense that they're all sort of stepped outside of society. They've stepped outside of the rules. And this is where this, the the, the cross dressing things seem to come in. Obviously, Lady Catherine Ferrers would dress as a man. Mol Cutpurse, you mentioned, would dress. She was brilliant, Mol Cutpurse. Mm-hmm. I think she she uh, she was mainly a thief and offence. But I think she was about sixty when she decided to become a, a highwayman, a highwayman woman. Man, uh, she'd always dressed as a man her entire life. Mm-hmm. That, that was just how she was. But she uh, was uh, a monarchist at the time of the Civil War, so she'd only hold up parliamentarians. That, that was her That was her rule. Uh, Tom Reynolds, you, you mentioned, was a man who always dressed as a woman um, and he would ride side saddle unless he had to get away. And, and, and the descriptions of people like Tom Reynolds, they'd sort of say, oh, well, he dressed as a woman, probably it was a disguise. And now we look at this and we go, oh, these, these people are transgender. It's quite clear to us now. It, it, it sort of makes total sense. And the only way you could be at that, that time would be to step outside mm-hmm. of society as as they were doing, and it's it gives a weird insight into this particular point of our history. Because most of uh, the the highwaymen we think of, it tends to be around the Civil War period or or the decades afterwards, so it's, it's into the eighteenth century as well. Uh, but less and less, it's 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 much more concentrated on that. I mean, we had highwaymen up until the age of rail, really, mm-hmm. but we we don't sort of ignore that, focus much on that. It's this; they're very much linked to this time 
of chaos, you know, when we chopped the head off the king, you know, all the all the normal uh, systems of structures, the way we understood ourselves, uh, was just thrown out the window. It was it was a time when all the the old rules ended, and we hadn't didn't know what the new rules were, and and it was it was people were free to to do whatever. There was, there was the ranters, there was groups like the the the, the, the levelers and and the diggers, and and there was uh, there was there was, there was Groups who were very much uh, who believed uh, that they were incapable of sin, so they were free to have sex with whoever they liked, and it's like a real sort of. It was like the sixties counterculture about mm. three hundred years too early. There was there was this real yeah that the, chopping the head off the king did did a lot of strange things to the national psyche. It, it, it must be said, uh, it's this the hyomen sort of tied into. I'm Jeff Dyer. You're listening to Resonance FM, and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. Just coming back to London briefly, I just wanted to talk about, I spent some time talking about the London Stone. Mm. This piece of rock. That piece of rock, yeah. I used to work years ago on Cannon Street, and oh. I'm a, you know, very, very familiar with its rather sad little sort of <laughs> hiding place in, a, in yeah. a little sort of like compartment in a building. Yeah. Um, before it was before it was moved over to the uh, to the Museum of London, this is a piece of rock that has well, I was going to say outlived. That's the wrong word, but you know, um, predated. Mm. London itself, possibly, yeah, quite possibly. I mean, uh, from the earliest references we have, there's a sense that it's everybody knows about it because it's such an old thing <laughs> at, at the time. Now it looks like it's like a giant's tooth, really. It's 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 a piece of limestone, um, but it used to be a much taller sort of thing. I think it was probably the Great Fire of London which <laughs> destroyed, made it much smaller than it than it is now. But it survived the Great Fire of London. It survived the Blitz. It's sort of always been there. And it's it's linked to the early founding myths of London. So mm-hmm. it's sometimes called the Bruges Stone after Brutus of Troy, who said to have founded London. And the the saying is, so long as the Brutus Stone remains, then the city of London will be will stand, will be safe. And so that when they did move it, because the, the building it in is being rebuilt, they moved it to the Museum of London. It's literally just five minutes up the road. Mm-hmm. They had to try and work out how to insure it. Because what was it worth? You know, was it worth like, you know, 19... 19- you know, quid, which is what a lump of limestone that much would cost, or was it worth one point nine trillion, which is the turnover of the you know the city of London? Um, it was it was complicated stuff, but they, they they moved it a little bit, and in theory that shouldn't have mattered because it was still in the city of London. But it's so old, it's so old that it uh, predates the the current boundaries of the city of London, and. I just thought I just had a notion that hang on, what was the original boundaries? There was the Roman. It was the, they're marked by the Roman walls, uh, and I got the map out and I looked where the Museum of London was. The London Wall. Yeah, it's just just but just <laughs> north of London. It's li- they've, they've moved it literally yards outside of the original uh, uh, city of London. At the moment they did that, right, Brexit happened. And to speak to anyone who who works in the city of London, they'll just say, oh, it's over. City of London's over without passporting rights. Uh, It's all going to collapse. We're off to Frankfurt, off to Dublin. Um, And the, uh, you know, the top end of the the London housing market will collapse. And then the rest of the London housing market will collapse. It's all over. City of London's finished. The moment that they move this stone that's been there for centuries just outside, all that sort of things happens. And, you know, part of you goes, well, it's just a... It's just a stone, right? It's just, it's just a rock. But this is the thing about myths. They don't know they're, that they're not real. They just act out anyway. They just sort of, you know, uh, behave. And I, I, I take 
great comfort in the fact that I think some point next year they're going to move it back. Uh, the, the the building will, will be finished and it'll leave the Museum of London and go back to 111 Cannon Street, which is, which is its home. Uh, so I'd be very curious as to see what happens to the uh, the plans for Brexit in the City of London when they, they've moved this stone back. That'd be, it's, you know, it's probably... Uh, I know it's daft to uh, uh, pin such hopes on, on myths, but they do seem to pay out in some strange, strange ways. <laughs> Okay, just uh, one other thing to to finish off, and there's there's lots of this book that we haven't talked about: the Crossbone Cemetery in mm, London, a yeah. visit to uh, to Dunstable as a, I think a, a sort of archetypal Brexit town, should we say? A tour around uh, Northampton with Alan Moore. Yeah, yeah. but um, <clears throat> I want to finish about talking about you know the country, and a, a theme that keeps sort of recurring is actually you know. We could talk about the identity, you know, feeling some sort of identity, some sort of identification mm. with it. Mm. But of course, who actually owns it? Uh-huh. And so I wanted to finish off talking about the possibility of a land tax, basically, John, but I think it's such a great idea. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's. I mean, when I was writing the book, as I say, I was trying to. I was trying to take a neutral you can't take a neutral tone it's absolutely impossible you can try to take a neutral tone and it tends to sort of work a, uh, a little bit better and I was, I was very aware that it was the book was suggesting new ways to, to look at the country and I was very aware the book wanted uh, the odd concrete example here and there uh, and and the, the, the note the idea of a land tax seemed the obvious one to do out of what i mean any sort of change in taxation is going to have winners and losers right but there's there's no change that would have you know more winners and less losers than the the land tax because mm-hmm. the way the um the land ownership in this country works well, i'm not sure works even in the right idea there's a large parts of this country we just don't know who owns mm-hmm. right the land registry don't know who owns the, these things they're put into trust so that they're they can be passed through through generations through generations i mean the the duke of westminster died uh and is a couple of years ago now and his uh i think it was his third oldest child uh inherited it I, the boy, basically. He couldn't go to a girl. You know, the title and all, and had to go to a boy. Completely, uh, none of it taxed or, or anything like that, because it was in a, a, a particular uh, trust. And land has become more and more used uh, for speculation. For speculative. If you own land, and if it's in a position to be farmed, it doesn't have to be farmed, but it's in a, if it's in a, a condition where it could be farmed, you get all this money from the, the mm-hmm. EU. So you get a lot of sort of people from Saudi Arabia, sort of Americans, just buying up all land around Europe and in, in, in Britain, that we could kind of use to sort of, you know, build houses on or, or, or something like that. If, if the, the, we're going to need to grow food on it if we leave to, Europe. To, to grow food on it, yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the age of farmers is, is crazy now. You hear uh, statistics, the average age of farmers is about 60, because mm-hmm. there's all these young farmers, they just can't afford the land because the price has been massively, massively hoiked by people buying land to hoard right not to use and if and in a number of places around the world they have a, a, a land value tax australia's one and it's generally seen as a very very fair tax because you can't um, hide land you can't dodge it uh, and and you can um you know if you if you if you want some land to you know raise cows or something like that then there's a there's a small tax to pay and things and things like that but that's that's sort of fine so you only really have land if you've got if you've got a use for it it's it's a re- it's a really fascinating. I say it's a fascinating subject. It's very it's a subject. It's very hard 
to portray in a fascinating way. If you're, oh, I want to talk to you about a land value tax, you know, you're going to, people are just going to really, really switch off. The more you look at it, the more you go, yeah, that's really sort of, yeah, I get that. I, I get that. That would, that would make a lot, a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. And there's, it's more a sense that the country is there for us. Uh, there was there was Lloyd George who said, "Who is it? Uh, you know, the, 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 I forget the exact." phrase but who is it who made these 10,000 people as own, owners of the land of your birth when the rest of us sort of have nothing we're sort of born onto this country but it's owned by someone else right so that you can't sort of eke a living on it it's owned by something sort of, we're sort of kept off the place where we're born if there was a land value tax then it sort of shifts the um, the whole understanding the country is, is is there to support everyone you know yeah and, and, and it's all the idea that you own land is kind of kind of kind of ridiculous you know it's 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 been there for thousands and centuries and they will be there for much later and you're just you're you know you come and go very very quickly it, mm-hmm. it, it sort of it changes the way you think about it yeah yeah i appreciate it can come across as a very sort of dry sort of topic but it's uh well as i, said, I think it's, a, it's such a great idea that self-indulgently i thought we'd 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 finish off the uh the conversation spending some time talking about that so okay so i've been talking to john higgs and we've been talking about his latest book watlin street john Thank you so much for coming in and sharing it with us. You're very welcome. You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. You can find the Little Atoms podcast on iTunes and you can follow the show on Twitter at Little Atoms. If you'd like to donate a little money to support the show, you can do so at littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.